Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And it's loads of Brexit from us. As it will be until the rest of our lives. And there is no You Ask Us this week. Instead, we've got Tom and Kate from the back half, uh, who both work, obviously, on the back half of the magazine. That's where the label comes from. We're going to talk about Stan and Ollie, the new film. Let's talk about Brex, baby. By the time that people are listening to this, presumably the you know, confidence vote will have happened in which Jeremy Corbyn will have run a resounding victory as the entire Tory party voted I mean, against I think Theresa we May. I don't need to hedge because if Theresa May, by some astonishing act of political incompetence, manages to lose the confidence vote... We'll have to re-record it. Then we will re-record it. So, <laughs> so I mean, let's just sound very confident, right? So, Theresa May has lost the... No, but she's won the no-confidence vote. Won the no-confidence vote. Or, I mean, it, I mean, it is a little bit to win is to lose and to lose is to win, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you at this point... Oh, I know, I'd chuck it in. I would have refused to come out and done any of the debate. I would just go, and you can't make me. What are you going to do? So I watched last night on Sky, actually. We had a lively debate in our household about which channel we were going to watch, and it was Alistair Campbell shouting at Nigel Farage on the BBC that settled us that Sky would be the one that we would choose. So I got to watch Kevin Barron's amendment, which would have... Come on, help me with what Kevin Barron's amendment... So it was would have ended the backstop. It would have given MPs the right to unilaterally end the backstop, which obviously means it's not really a backstop. Which means anymore. you misunderstood the concept of a, yeah. of a backstop as being the thing that happens when everything else has, has fallen through, which he only got 24 votes for. But then I thought, wow, that's a really embarrassing defeat. Little did I know it was mere amuse bouche for Theresa May's whopping great 200 plus defeat. So the biggest defeat in modern times. Oh, no, ever. Ever. Right, okay. Ever. It is like, yeah, it is the biggest defeat in basically whatever metric you want. It is the biggest in the history of a 650 odd seat of House of Commons. So the biggest since the Act of Union with, with Ireland. It is the biggest in the history of Parliament before the Union of Crowns. It is the biggest. It, I mean, like. And quite, people say that Theresa May's got no achievements. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it is quite literally, right? The long Parliament did not defeat Charles I by that bigger margin, and they had him killed at the end of the process. I love the thought about what were those MPs like who were voting that, yeah, we want our incredibly awful, tiny monarch. We want, Actually, I'm going to vote in favour of him. And yet there were more of them, presumably, than there were that voted in favour of Theresa May's Brexit deal. Yep. 
Right, so she's now got three working days to produce Plan B, so she's come back on Monday. Jeremy Corbyn is in a similarly unpleasant situation, which is that the conference motion that was agreed after some fudgerama was that they would try and move for a general election, and then after that, all options were on the table. The table is very important here, including a second referendum, including presumably moving another confidence vote, including asking for an extension to Article 50, including Jeremy doing a little dance. I mean, so the thing is, is, is people keep saying, and indeed I'm midway through trying to work out how to, to, to write a piece which broadly has this as it's it's a, they keep saying oh and, and there will be pressure on jeremy corbyn as well but from who <laughs> like, yeah. i mean but like it is one of those things where i just think it, it's like a classic example of kind of um not just because i think basically there are two types of, of herd behavior that, that we engage with in political journalism there's there's like the bit when everyone literally hurts and then there's what i think of as kind of who basically go like go like well i think that the herd is wrong Here's my original opinion. I'm going to slightly move, mm. you know, so people were kind of, you know, doing kind of various pools about how big the defeat would be. And um, you'd have, there were, there were always people saying things, ridiculous things like 40, and you'd go, so what, that would be only 30 Tory rebel? Yeah, like, well, mm. that doesn't make any sense. But what would happen is you would then have, and I myself did this, people going, I think it'll be 190, purely because you have this thing where it's just like, but I, I, I don't want to go crazy I, I, I far, go right? yeah. far away from this 50 idea which i believe to be crazy so i will yeah and because so many people keep going oh and then the labor party will be under under loads of pressure it's quite tempting to go like oh well there'll be some pressure but for there to be political pressure a couple of things have to be true two of which obviously aren't true one of which at the moment does not yet seem to be true okay give me the two untrue bits so the two untrue bits would be labor party members would have to start putting any type of meaningful institutional pressure on the leadership to change course. It's pretty hard for them to do anyway, right? Yeah, but they've skewed their two options to do so. You know, a majority of, of CLPs did not vote to bind the leadership's hands in terms of their choice of CLP delegates at Labour Party conference. And the majority of members elected not to vote in the NEC elections. And those who did vote voted by an overwhelming majority for a slate of candidates who were running essentially on a platform of whatever we, Jeremy we will, yeah we will be the extension of Jeremy Corbyn's will on the NEC yeah I'm sorry I, this this is going to be where the lack of sleep starts to start talking but you know what? I am so tired of the adenoidal whining of Labour activists who have who have just chosen time and time again not to prioritise our membership with the European Union going why don't you take our concerns more seriously? I'll take your concerns seriously the second you show any sign of taking your concerns seriously, which involves actually doing things to actually limit the, the mm. policy of the Labour leadership, actually holding MPs to account who support uh, pro-Brexit, but not going, I'm really mad, therefore I've decided that I think the solution is Yvette Cooper, who also backs the same terrible, maybe if we triangulate for a long time, the politics will, will resolve themselves approach. And also, crucially, a lot of Labour members who actually are genuinely annoyed about it are leaving. But if you leave a political party, well, you, you don't you lose your leverage over the, Jeremy Corbyn. So, so that that group, yeah. But also, I think the one the lesson we've had is that it's very hard to make political leaders do things they don't want to do, particularly with the fixed term Parliament Act, right? Theresa May has suffered a catastrophic, historic loss, and she's just going to go. Well, I'm not going though. I'm not going. What are you going to do? Well, I think the thing is right. Is I don't actually think that yesterday the problem was a fixed term Parliament issue, right? So the the Labour government of 1924, which only had 191 seats, obviously had quite a lot of quite painful painfully large defeat but if a majority of mps in the house are willing to sustain your presence in office then you can carry on it's um, bonkers though that they voted to keep her knowing this was a deal she was bringing to the table 
they're going to all almost. I bet I don't know if there'll be any Tory rebels against the the confidence motion in the House. So they're basically saying we've got complete confidence in the Prime Minister, whose flagship policy we've just said was crap. But they really agree with all of the commissions into things that will recommend policies, and they don't have a majority to enact. But they have a lot of confidence in those commissions. They're good commissions. Yeah, I mean it is it is a farcical situation in in every possible way. But it is a pre-existing farcical mm. uh, situation. It's not a farcical situation created by the Fixed Term Parliament Act. The second thing which would have to change would be that someone would have to emerge from within the Parliamentary Labour Party who looked capable of getting the support of a majority of MPs and a majority of members to change party policy. And then the third thing, because obviously last week I wrote about the four factions in Parliament, and in another way the missing faction, the faction which used to exist until the 2017 election, is Labour MPs who did not have strong opinions about Europe who would go, you don't understand, the Lib Dems either held this seat in 2005, nearly won it in 2005, nearly won it in 2000. You know, that had some kind of variation of, if I say anything bad about the European Union, I will wake up tomorrow and I will have been replaced by someone with strong opinions about De Hunt. Yeah. No one, No one in the Labour Party seriously believes, you know, no Labour MP seriously believes that will happen to them which means that that kind of countervailing pressure has has been lost and is not going to appear unless we have a sudden, unexpected, very rapid by-election in the kind of area where the, the Lib Dems could astonish us all. Cambridge? Yeah, but... It's just, but I mean, I'm trying to think where that could possibly happen, but yeah, there's but a, this, very the, few seats. The weird thing is, of course, is in the, those MPs used to exist in great numbers in the Tory party, of course. The irony is, is that many of the MPs who used to kind of wince at me and say... You don't understand the things she keeps saying about citizens of nowhere, the stuff she's saying about the EU. I'm concerned I'm going to lose my seat. A lot of those people aren't there anymore. You know, Ben Howlett did lose his seat to the Lib Dems in Bath. Mm. Theresa May was on and doing her usual trip there, which you pointed out her comments about the Welsh Assembly earlier this week, where she said, you know, no one serious denied the legitimacy of that referendum result, except for me, the person who voted against it in Parliament afterwards. But she was doing that again last night in Parliament after the vote when she went, I'm going to reach out to people across this house. And you're like, but not Jeremy Corbyn, who's literally the only one who you're reaching out to would be of any importance whatsoever. I'm going to say two very contradictory things. The first thing is I basically don't trust anything Theresa May says because unlike most politicians who it is not true to say this of, she both lies regularly but is very comfortable doing so. Most politicians oh, I think it's got lie, really, really big implications yeah, for the Brexit process. Lying because frequently but do it in a kind of an awkward way. It's very do. hard to know what actually she wants or her achievement or what things she's sticking to. And, and actually just that, in the same way that it's a problem for Trump, right? Because you just, it's bargaining with somebody who you don't know, actually don't know what her red lines are to some extent. Yeah, but equally, the reason why she's being so vague at the moment is because she knows that anything concrete is going to annoy some Conservative MPs. If she loses eight of them, then she would lose the confidence vote. So so some of that vagueness is is vagueness by design. But yeah, I mean, so yeah, the kind of the senior parliament, I'm going to talk to senior parliamentarians thing... I mean, so there are a couple of problems with it. The first is that it becomes a, you know, how many divisions does has the Pope got issue, right? Which I took me such a long time to understand what that was on about. I thought it was like divisions in Parliament, but you mean, it's like tank divisions, isn't it? Yeah, so basically no. at, at one point in, in Yalta, a French diplomat was saying, oh, yeah, look, you can't upset the Pope by doing this. Yeah. And Stalin was like, how many divisions does he have? It's a bit like you yeah. and whose army, yeah. the Pope. So, you know, what is a senior parliamentarian? 
in the Brexit process, right? I mean, let's say for argument's sake that it is Yvette Cooper who, who ticks a lot of boxes in terms of the definition of, of senior. She's been in Parliament for, for 21 years. She was, uh, you know, a Secretary of State. She's a Select Committee Chair. She's popular among Labour MPs. If you add up the number of people who supported her for the 2015 leadership, deduct the people who are kind of genuine born-again Corbynites, add the people who did not back her but would have backed her and you know, planned to back her in the 2017 leadership election that never happened. She is someone who, who at one point could have counted on the loyalty in a leadership election of, mm. of, of, of 80 Labour MPs. Well, does that mean that if you go for, for you know, for tea in Downing Street with Yvette Cooper and you go... She can deliver you, those people. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it doesn't. Right? It, it does not mean she can deliver anywhere near. Those people, you know, comprise people like Chris Bryant who are kind of you know so pro a second referendum that they are he might just have one himself in his deeply house. irresponsible things about any of the other escape hatches about avoiding no deal and it, it comprises people who, who who want to avoid blocking Brexit sufficiently strongly that they are also saying things about it is on those things where like you are talking about a situation in which the only politician who you could be certain could deliver you the numbers that you might need to pass some kind of Brexit deal. And even then, he himself has quite a limited ability to deliver anything, is Jeremy Corbyn himself. Um, okay, I want to run, because we have, we've got to keep it short, because I want to run you through scenarios and you tell me whether or not you think okay. they could happen, right? So, first scenario, Theresa May goes mad herself and calls an early election. It is hard to work out how there will not be some kind of electoral event, whether it's a... <laughs> Electoral event. Uh, Go uh, on. Another referendum, even though that seems impossible, they yeah. simply don't have the the numbers. They they could only basically one Labour MP decided that they were going to have an event as a show of strength, and then seventy others kind of went, "This is a bad idea." But the problem is, is once one person has decided to do it, if you don't row in behind it, it becomes an even worse idea. You're so talking you about the photo shoot for the people's photo vote. Photo shoot of the people. Well, well, this thing wasn't actually for the people's vote. It was a, a freelance operation, which. And again, it comes back to you can't control what MPs I'll tell you who was impressive about getting lots of people to stand behind them. Nicola Sturgeon. Did you see her on telly? I know someone tweeted that it looked a bit like someone being on the Antiques Roadshow. But she was just standing there with all the SMP. I mean, they are are some disciplined MPs. You tell them to turn up, they turn up. Yeah, I mean, but one, they're well drilled. But two, of course, she is... Hegemon. Yeah, that she is is the party's leader. I mean, she is, of course, also in the moment in a, a very difficult standoff with her predecessor. But, you know, she is the party's leader, which means she can uh, deliver numbers in a way that, that other people cannot. And also, it, on, yeah, in the same way that Jeremy Corbyn is kind of an undisputed king, she's undisputed queen. There's not another faction in the yeah. SNP that is, you know, that, that has coalesced around one person, right? Anyway, you think electoral event quite likely. Yeah, because either, right, either it somehow passes with some kind of backstop and then you maybe have a situation where the DUP pulls the plug, or it begins to look like she is heading towards no deal, in which case I think some Conservative MPs would... Would they, though? Would you th- this is the thing I keep thinking, is that I sort of assume all these people, it's sort of madman theory, that someone's going to blink and, like, turn the steering wheel. But do you think Dominic Grieve is, is at that point yet? Yes. I mean, so there are two reasons why I think that is a sincere belief. One, because they believe, in my view, rightly, that if you have a no-deal event and our, our whole... You know, the economy of every kind of globalised Western... 
is based on this idea that like my supply chain works on uh, just you in know, time. I, I, I yeah. need need my fresh milk now. It arrives now. It goes into the preserved state, and then it arrives on shop floors. If you, as a as a country, go through an event where suddenly all of those systems break down because you cut yourself up from the the market you're fully integrated into overnight, I just think the idea that as a political party you survive that in a form that can fight and win elections is is, is for the birds. It does not matter what doubts people have about the opposition party. Could we unilaterally just stop doing customs checks? Because all of that is dependent on like the fact that, like you say, if you've got real calves waiting uh, to cross the channel, then we have to they'll be delayed because tailbacks because of customs checks. This is the kind of thing that's probably going to start being suggested by Jacob Rees-Mogg within two weeks. What if we just didn't do any customs? What if we just let stuff in? I mean, a lot of people would probably die because of lack of sanitary standards, right? Um. <laughs> I know. I just, I just, I, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's one of those things where it's just such a basic question that I just worry that someone's going to suggest it. And well, we're so going- someone will suggest it, but then you are breaking WTO rules as well, right? You- right. You are at that point just a crazy mother yeah. lover standing with a kind of shotgun chat and come at me, bro, at the White Cliffs of Dover. Yeah. Okay. You do end up with tail. No, I think you would also like, you would you would poison people, right? Because a lot of these aren't just customs checks; it's phytosanitary standards, right? In order to check that you're not letting diseased stuff into the food chain. Yeah. Well, that's something to look forward to. Delaying Article Fifty. I think that's actually now incredibly likely. Now, so, so it is true that the official position of the is look, you can only get a technical extension if you need if you've passed bits of it and you need to pass the rest of it or you know you you want to have an election or a referendum right and we get until july when the european elections are do you think that's a hard limit no i mean i actually don't think it is yeah in the last for obvious reasons in the last couple of weeks i have been making a deliberate effort to talk to as many eu diplomats as possible and within a lot of member states there is basically an attitude of well there's no appetite to go over the cliff on anyone's part so even though a large number of eu diplomats find it irksome when MPs stand up and go we need to extend article 50 so we have more time for a discussion and it's just like how much time do you guys want you've had two years I still think that they probably could get one just because it's in no one's interest to have a no deal event Um, I fear that I fear an extension article 50 because I think that the only thing that's vaguely concentrating people's minds is the idea that everyone's going to run the you know everyone I mean our minds concentrate well but you know what I mean like the whole point of Labour's position is at some point they will have to resolve the Schrodinger's cat of their Brexit policy and upset half their electoral coalition and they want to do that under circumstances of extreme stress in which they can go this is the thing that we had to do it was the only way out for the country right and the problem with extending the article 50 process is it it removes moves that kind of pressure cooker well, The element. interesting thing is, if you look at what the kind of anti-Remain slash pro-Brexit people in the shadow cabinet, both the kind of people you think of as Corbynite and the kind of stay-behinds, they are actually already in deal mode now, right? They're saying, like, you know, customs union, single market access, and something on workers' rights. And obviously, if you are in the rules of the single market, you have a floor on standards on workers' but rights. But they mean access to the single market, though. Like, you they, either they in mean it... something like Norway. Yeah. There are lots and lots and lots of things about, about Labour's position on Brexit that are, to my mind, highly irksome. But the things they are asking for are... You know, at, you know, the uh, things the they were asking for yeah. yesterday are, are concrete things. Now, the big question is, we don't know when Chris Grayling says we need to have an independent trade policy, whether or not that is a because we've got to win this confidence vote position or if it is a sincere 
position than the Tory party cannot move from without splitting. Do you th- talking about pressure on Jeremy Corbyn, do you think he can survive a weekend media round intact going, you know, having to defend why now freedom of movement is going to continue indefinitely, which is what access to the single market would really mean? He went into the last election on a manifesto promising to promising end it, he would end and it, so yeah. that it wasn't a very useful dividing line with the Tories there. I just don't think that that media round will happen. If I did think it was, I would be a lot more optimistic about the prospects of a a second referendum being won, right? Fundamentally, right, this this is a, a political party which has managed to have a very clear position of let's just not irritate anyone because we want to win an election, which is not the only reason why they've managed to, to carry it off, but one of the reasons why they've managed to carry it off is a large number of, of journalists, particularly in broadcast, have covered that in a kind of like, why is Labour so stupid? Not in a kind of like, well, what are the policy implications of this position mm. you know then weirdly if you if you ask questions of, of either political party about policy implications of its brexit position as opposed to the last about the criminology implications of their position they very rapidly unravel but i afraid i simply don't believe and that will ever happen on a, a weekend round of, of tv shows then someone will go well doesn't this mean free movement and they won't just be able to go labor recognizing its manifesto that free movement will end our single jobs market first, deal job. brexit like we do not live in a media ecosystem which is effective at breaking down that like sediment so of nonsense um first of all what do you what do you want to happen next because i'm now i've formed a small coalition in the office with john ellidge onto norway just Norway Plus. I mean, so I must admit, I find the whole kind of what do I want to happen a hard thing to get my head around. You're not allowed to do the whole like, well, I wouldn't have started from here. But the thing is, the why I wouldn't have started from here is like a really important, like, so the whole kind of, you've, so yep, let's, you've, let's you've, like the kind of people's vote, right, for example, right? Would I like someone to give me a million pounds? Yes. Right. But no one's going to give me a million pounds, right? We are not going to have another vote because they can only, they can't, can't even get a hundred Labour MPs to go public to say that they want But you've one. been nice before to them by saying that their existence is helpful as a kind of counterweight to the ERG and, you know, and the fact that they're getting spokespeople oh, on yeah, TV. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, like, it's good that they exist. Well, it was good that, to... A place they, for their energy to go. It was good that they existed at first and I'm less convinced than it is still good that you have Peter Kyle standing up and, and just outright lying, right? It was a, what he said today in the comments was a lie. What did he say? He said um, there are not people outside this building... There were thousands of people protesting outside for a people's vote. There were not thousands. There are not people outside protesting for a Canada-style deal. There were. I know because I had to walk through them. No, uh, I saw those leave versus, like, honk if you yeah. want to leave people outside and Parliament. And it's one of those things where it's just like... And then this kind of this dangerous rhetoric of a final say, you know, being willing to kind of not just to lose again and to lose again, having said, oh, well, we definitely won't do this again and we think Norway is illegitimate when he has no path to a parliamentary majority for it. I just don't think is an OK way for a, a member of Parliament to behave. Yeah, my my central preference is that no deal be avoided. And I think that the steps to no deal being avoided are, one, for the rhetorical heat about Labour's Brexit position to to be be taken down a notch. So for people on both sides of that issue to stop using the word betrayal, whether it's betraying Brexit voters or betraying the young who voted Labour in so many numbers or whatever. I would like the Conservative Party's leader to stop saying things which are just not true. Um, no deal is better than a bad deal. Yeah, my assumption is, is that the resolution which can command a majority in this House of Commons is Norway, and therefore I am kind of for it because it is not 
no deal, an event which would which people. But would you die. could achieve that by passing May's deal as currently constituted and then changing the political declaration, right? Yeah, there's an open argument about whether or not you even need to change the political declaration and whether or not you can just go, okay, we want Norway, and she will probably have to go into it. But I mean, I just think one of the slightly fascinating trends about social media is the way that you have some MPs behaving in ways that are. Uh, like, it's okay if you're, like, someone who wants a people's vote and you're not a member of parliament to go, but Norway's a terrible idea because we'd be rule-takers. Fine. Fine. You're not the person who ultimately has to build some kind of parliamentary coalition. I do not think it is responsible for members of parliament to behave in that way, which is why the majority of, of pro-people's vote MPs are not, because they at some point are going to have to form some kind of coalition to prevent no deal. Right. Yeah, I kind of feel like that about all the people who voted against the deal. And I think, think how are they going to reconcile themselves to voting for the deal if it's the alternative is, is no deal? I mean, like, they might not, though. Yeah, because people are crazy. Yeah. Stephen, you look very tired. Would you like to sing a little bit of something from Les Miserables? No, because there is no song from Les Miserables about how... I mean, so the, the thing I am genuinely intrigued by, apart from the kind of terrifying side consequence where, you know, terrible things happen to all of us, is we are going to learn something, right, about how how democracies operate right game theory suggests we go over the cliff because everyone would have to you know everyone loses out to prevent us um as is that great itv game show with was it shaft or stick yeah yeah. (laughs) like or shaft the idea that democracies don't create famine of course suggests that they will intervene and the pattern of course throughout most of europe and indeed most of of the democratic world in recent years has been what happens is eventually the center-left goes fine will take electoral damage whether they go into grand coalition with their opponents whether they in the case of the obama administration accept a bunch of concessions in order to pass a vote to extend the debt ceiling that has tended to be the thing that has averted immediate crisis Mm -hmm. is the center-left opting to take political damage now we have a fascinating situation in this country where we have a left-wing party with a largely social democratic group of MPs and a democratic socialist or left populist or whatever Labour you want leadership. Mm. Now, the fascinating thing is, is the Labour Party going to behave more like a centre-left party in the democratic world and go, I'm going to take political damage in order to prevent this catastrophe? Or is it going to go well, the right's not going to take political damage. Why the hell should we? Where does Alexis Tsipras Syriza fit into this, accepting the deal of the the austerity bailout? I mean, they did do an awful lot of of trying to avoid taking Mm. political damage first. And they, of course, were the unchallenged governing party. But yeah, so this is the, I guess, kind of in some ways, we will... Because obviously the, the reckoning on, on why Greece has worked out the way it is and the decision they had has not yet been fully... Yeah, yeah. yeah and in an odd way, this is an, another interesting data point, apart from the fact that there are real lives involved in both countries. Yeah, I think that's, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's something that's worth, worth... Anyway, we will, I was going to say, we will come back to this forever. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to The Back Half. I'm Tom Gatti, Deputy Editor of The New Statesman. And I'm Kate Mossman, The Arts Editor. And together we, we are The Back Half. We represent the back half of the magazine, which historically has always been the place for arts, culture, books. And something in my mind, the, the pantomime horse, the back legs and, and the tail. But now that we've been elevated onto The New Statesman main podcast, I think of us a bit more of a, the, the barnacle on the underbelly of the giant whale. The, the limpet. We've made the great migration and now clamped onto HMS politics. <laughs> we might be something of a conjoined twin or a vestigial limb. We have both been watching the Bross documentary, so we're very keen on extended, Our metaphors. painfully mixed metaphors yes. today. Um, so yes, we, we regularly round up the more fun parts of arts and culture. So what are we going to be talking about today, Kate? We're going to be talking about Stan and Ollie, the new film about Stan and Ollie, and Holmes and Watson, the new film about Holmes and Watson. But first, our regular delve into the cultural archives. It is time for our non-anniversary, the non-significant anniversary of a non-significant cultural event or product. So 23 years ago, at this moment... What happened, Tom? Well, this month certainly depends what day you're listening to. Uh, Literally, to this, this moment, this second, Spaceman by Babylon Zoo rocketed into the charts, straight in at number one, becoming the fastest-selling single in the UK in over 30 years since the Beatles' "Can't Buy Me Love." Is that right? It is correct. This, of course, was the, the product of Jazz Man. Jazz Man. Wolverhampton-born, one-man music machine, <laughs> who then subsequently came, became like the Elon Musk of late 90s pop with various production companies. He has distributed and produced over 20 feature films. Jazz Man came out with some extraordinary stuff at the time. I found an interview that he did with uh, Glasgow's Daily Record. Boasts blue-eyed jazz, says the reporter... I was a sex symbol as soon as I jumped out of the womb. I love women and there's nothing better than knowing women are sexually attracted to me. Mm-hmm. I always knew Spaceman would be number one because the pop scene is static. I'm the only person making music that hasn't been heard before and I intend to carry on that way. Also, famously, Chris Morris interviewed him. He did. Upon Brass Eye and asked him whether he would ever write a spherical song. <laughs> he introduced him the best introduction line even even topping some of Chris Morris's brilliant introduction lines. He is the Chung Wit, the Biff Boff and the Puff Pastry Hangman. I have to say, I gave this song a re-listen. I was blown away by it. (laughs) This is quite a song. (laughs) This is a rather epic production. It's got many, many sections going on. And I was thinking about what what he's actually doing with it, consciously or not. So it begins with the prodigy-style high chorus of his speeded-up voice going, Spaceman, which is Firestarter and, you know, all that that kind of era prodigy. And then there's a kind of grungy bit. And then there's a bit where he sounds like Dave Garn when he was going through his Jane's addiction period. And that's when he goes, there's a fire between us and who is your God? And then there's a suede bit. Do you remember the suede bit when he goes, images of fascist folks? Oh, he yeah. sounds exactly <laughs> like suede. And then there's another chorus, which is like Green Day. I mean, it's like, it's a one hit wonder, but it's got loads and loads of different bits going on. And it's kind of value for money, you know, and it's all achieved with complete bollocks lyrics. 
doesn't mean anything. The lyrics are are terrible, aren't they? They've got this the total like six form television takes control. Electronic information tampers with your soul. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you appreciate its uh, its rich uh, packed <laughs> quality because part of the reason this song did so well is, is it was used on a Levi's ad. Like one of these Levi's ads that you watch it now and it just seems incredibly retrograde. It's like sexy woman comes down from spaceship. <laughs> All the men watering their lawns like turn around and like their jaws like drop open as she as she <laughs> and their hoses through. dribble yeah their, and their hoses dribble as she stalks through in her bra and so Levi's. it's like cosmic girl yeah but they they only used in the Levi's ad they only used the introduction which as you say is this kind of high pitch prodigy section although I'd locate it more as sort of prodigy experience their first album rather yes, than Firestarter I was thinking that Firestarter isn't the one what's the one with the really like high Charlie voice Charlie and um, Out of Space yeah Out of like Space that. yeah. that's it yeah 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 so um, be, again he was consciously yeah, doing that yeah, yeah. well Magpie. Al- although although that section this is getting into quite high level detail here but that section as far as I can understand that section only came from the Andrew Baker remix of the ah. song. And I found the original on YouTube, which they sent out on the promo copies, and it has it doesn't have that section in it at all. So Levi's heard the remix and thought, we right. want that bit. And they wanted that bit. And so a whole chunk of kids, like, you know, I've, I remember me and my friend Mark, Mark had just got his first pair of decks. He was, he was, he would have been 15, I was 14, I think. And he was like getting his first few records. We got a copy of uh, Skilo. I wish I was a little bit taller. And Babylon Zoo was the f- the second record he bought. And we took it home to listen to it. And, you know, the intro comes on. Yeah, great. And then it goes into this thing. <laughs> I didn't mind so much because I like guitar music, but Mark was kind of a dance, dance <laughs> music fan. And it was just a crushing disappointment that it was this kind of rock dirt. He's like, where's the, where's the cool spaceman dick? A great, a great rock dirt is the chorus. I'm obsessed with like song structures. The chorus doesn't come in for one minute, 50 seconds. Wow. I mean, that's really Delayed holding your fire, isn't it? Yeah, like any song that has a million sections always gets my vote. And also I was wondering, I'm not that serious about this, by the way. I don't think this is a fantastic song. No, but you but... made me appreciate it at a level that I didn't before. So thank you. I wonder, if it's the tail end of the novelty song as well so mm-hmm. novelty songs in recent history that i can think of things like you know bob the builder and stuff like that so they're they're attached to a product right but this was something that meant bugger all and people thought it was really fun for some reason they couldn't explain why and it sold in its millions so maybe it maybe it is actually a classic novelty song it's also at the tail end of the kind of great advertising hit or at least the at least the great levi's hit i mean i remember stiltskin inside from growing up and then this and then after this there was flat beat do you remember that yeah flat eric and as like tv ads become less significant i don't i mean i don't know what has been the levi's Levi's ad here. I'm sure I don't know. possibly there has been one. But do you remember from the same time? Actually, it would have, it would have been a lot earlier when the Wrigley's ad used "All Right Now." Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was just yeah. like that's the only way you knew those songs. Iconic, totally <laughs> iconic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so no wonder Jazzman was able to invest in many, many companies, including some in the Dominican Republic <laughs> and um, and Virgin Mobile and Virgin Atlantic and all sorts of things. I'm so glad he's turned out well. I'd like to know what he's doing now. So Jazz, if you're listening, please do write in. Please get in touch. So Kate, over the last week or so, we've been to see two 
comedy double acts mm. in the cinema. We saw Holmes and Watson, which uh, actually came out over Christmas and, and received a 0.5 star rating from Rolling Stone. Its uh, rating on Rotten Tomatoes is has gone up. It's now at 9%. 9%. Yeah. yeah. Allegedly, many people throughout America walked out of the of the movie theatre when, when they began to realise that this was not, you know, maybe Holmes and Watson, but the Will Ferrell vehicle. So this is Will Ferrell as Holmes and John C. Riley as Watson. Reuniting the stepbrothers. The genius stepbrothers combination, but without, as far as I remember, a scene about someone putting their nutsack on your drums, <laughs> which is my favourite line from stepbrothers. And what's the other film we have? It also stars John C. Riley this time as Oliver Hardy. It's Stan and Ollie. John C. Riley playing Oliver Hardy and Steve Coogan playing Stan Laurel. So this is homing in on Laurel and Hardy's final tour when they were kind of a little bit washed up, really. They'd had their sort of main career, then they'd gone off to do their separate things. They make much of the fact in the movie that Oliver Hardy went off to do what's just known as the elephant movie. <laughs> Which was actually called Zenobia. Zenobia. But, yeah. Laurel was uh, had some big fallout with the, the producer at the time and was sort of off contract when this film was made. And it's about a doctor who manages to cure a circus elephant. And then the circus elephant develops such an attachment to the doctor that he just follows him around for the rest of his life. And meanwhile, the circus elephant's trainer sues for alienation of affection. <laughs> Sounds brilliant. Sounds, <laughs> sounds great. Sounds I'm sure nice. it's a cult, a cult piece now. But yeah, it's just casually referred to as the the elephant move. The one one time in their career that they were they were separated early on. So they come to the UK to do this tour of like live tour of of theatres, and in the meantime they've got this plan to do a Robin Hood movie, which Stan Laurel, who's really the kind of creative driving force of the relationship isn't he he's the writer he's the kind of ideas man he's working on this movie which you increasingly realize throughout the film Stan and Ollie that it's never going to come to fruition there's lots of chasing around a man that they keep calling Muffin uh, but his name is in fact Miffin there are better jokes that's, <laughs> that's not perhaps the strongest joke in the entire film although to be fair they do repeat it quite a few times <laughs> What did you think of this, Kate? I thought that I, I was deeply touched by this film. I didn't expect it to be as it was. It's uh, after having seen Holmes and Watson, which is essentially a, a vessel for feral to force his <laughs> overbearing <laughs> presence we, into. We should probably come clean here that we are, we're very, very partial to yeah. a bit of feral and, and more than partial to a bit of John C. Riley yeah, as well. So yeah. I think we would probably be kinder to Holmes and Watson than than most people. But even, even I have started to think that in even the best feral film, there are only four funny moments. Yeah. And the rest of it is, you know, random comments that yeah. are thrown out there. It does. It is amusing, but it's certainly not about Holmes and Watson on any level. And I just thought as an interesting contrast, you've got you've got this kind of this famous double act into which these comedians force their own gags and do yeah. exactly what they've always done. And then you've got this famous comedy double act into which essentially... Coogan and Riley sort of disappear. Yeah. Because the, the thing that you always hear about Steve Coogan is you can't not see Alan Partridge. Yeah. And for the first time, there's no there's no Partridge here, but what there is, is a an obsessive comedian. So actually, what he's doing within the role is he's bringing the kind of 
auspices of the great comic actor to another great comic actor. And he's an obsessive writer. He can't stop. He In real life, he actually wrote material for Laurel and Hardy eight years yes. after Hardy had died. He carried on writing sketches that yeah. he knew would never be performed. That he knew would never be performed. And it's like you, you see the workings of this this mind and they're at the, the closest parallel to other to Coogan's other material, I thought, was the shades of the trip when they're sitting on the steam train coming into London and, and Hardy's saying, what would you say there usually? And so they're creating jokes all the time. Mm. But he's not bringing, you know, Paul Carf or Partridge to the part. No, you're right. He really has this this amazing sort of... He captures Stan Laurel's sort of diffident, shrugging, quite a childlike character in some ways. In an old it? man's body Yeah, in an old well. man's body, yeah. Obviously, John C. Riley has the more immediately eye-catching role because he's literally a larger-than-life character. And we were talking about the, the way he looks. And actually, what I hadn't realised is that he's in a complete prosthetic fat suit. I thought it was CGI, thing. but it's not, is it? Three-hour fat suit every day. Yeah, and only sort of the ring, the sort of panda rings around his eyes and the palms of his hands are his real skin and everything else is... is is prosthetics, which is kind of which is kind of amazing, and he does he really carries like you see him sort of unfolding himself out of a taxi, and you can really feel that he's carrying that that weight around. And what he does very well in a physical way is, you know, part of this narrative is that Hardy is getting ill basically, mm. and he has a stroke during this tour, and he does that kind of very good like confused face sweat kind of cascading <laughs> Sli- off slightly the green yeah, yeah. yeah but they work very they do capture something really sweet about this relationship don't they apparently they didn't become friends until the end of their career because when they were at their height it was a classic sort of thing in the sense that they were working so much that because the way they were were built sort of independently of each other Laurel would be writing all the material and Hardy would go go straight to the golf course after he'd been in the studio and it was only when they were stuck on regional train systems in the UK or boats to Ireland that they apparently actually got got close so that's not an embellishment I think there are lots of things apparently which aren't quite true in the film so there there wasn't really a Robin Hood film the sort of the driving force behind this, mm. this final tour it was mooted once at some point but it didn't really come to come to fruition I'm um, not sure that the the gags they create for the Robin Hood film are the best gags well, the I was, the thing is I was going to say don't don't you think the weird thing is I never found Laurel and Hardy funny because I didn't grow up watching them. yeah but this film made me think they were hilarious mm. because of that old comedy idea that the more you repeat the same joke, yes. the funnier it's going to get. Especially if you can stand outside it because you've got a real comedy writer in Coogan sort of, you know, looking at the mechanics of how the jokes work and everything. And it's a bit like, you know, you, you had the old in the old days with the, the silent kind of bits of Laurel and Hardy, you would have had this sense of the slapstick and the naivety. Whereas this is almost like slapstick and naivety by way of Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld because you've got somebody talking about the writing mm. of the sketches and what would you say now and how's that bit going to work and stuff. So actually I did find it a lot funnier than I'd have I'd imagined, even just watching them. I agree and, and you get, because you're seeing them on tour, you also get the extra deliberate repetition of seeing the same sketches perform more than once. So there's one sketch called Hard Boiled Eggs and Nuts where um, Stan goes to visit Ollie in hospital and he's, he's sort of laid up with this comically giant leg cast and he brings him hard-boiled eggs and nuts and then proceeds to, like, crack open an egg and eat it himself in a very, very... And I, I went, I watched... This is a scene from County Hospital, which yeah. I went online and, and watched the original. And I do think Coogan's 
portrayal is a bit funnier actually, yeah. because <laughs> he actually slows it down and and the the cracking open of the egg is even more sort of laborious and uh... he's basically just sitting facing forwards next to hardy in the hospital bed with a little bedside table just rolling the eggs yeah. back and forth yeah. very slowly and when it comes to actually telling a joke about the imagined robin hood film there was like a, a moment in the cinema where people were pissing themselves wasn't there like just the, the idea of, of hardy has to cry particularly hard and it makes a plant grow quite fast yes. like that yeah, is that not was... funny yeah. <laughs> but you enjoy you enjoy them thinking about how funny yeah it's they enjoyed them laughing yeah. at the idea yeah. so it's sort yeah. of um it, it did sort of reboot the the comedy for me a little bit but then i'd never really seen it so i can't comment you know I'm not, i wasn't like massively into chaplin and laurel and hardy so they also sort of double up i was going to say double down that's such an overused <laughs> phrase they don't they double up on the comedy by having their wives form a sort of alternative comic double act yeah. don't they so they both had several wives I think Hardy is on his third wife maybe Stan married five times but it's confusing because he married one of the wives twice <laughs> uh, he had an extremely complicated love life and a financially ruinous one uh, I think at some point just before this film is takes place is set he there's a court case and he reveals that basically he's left with $200 at the end of every month. And you think this is a kind of global superstar. Sounds like Bernie Taupin. Um, yeah. <laughs> There's also a line at the start where he goes, I'm not going to get married again. I'm just going to find a woman I don't like and buy her a house. Yes. <laughs> and so the the two wives, you've got, it's Shirley Henderson, is it, who plays the... Um, yeah, with her really annoying voice. You find, you find her quite creepy, don't you? In any role, I can't bear the, the well, lisping, find, metallic voice. I find her creepy be- but it's all down to Happy Valley. You know, she yes. plays the um, Maybe that's incredibly what it is. sinister... Stalker. The girlfriend of the of the villain in, in Happy Valley. But she also played, maybe you know this, in which case it won't strike you with the force of revelation, but in Trainspotting. Yeah. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> right, I was well, thinking, she... <laughs> was she annoying then? Probably yeah. not. Maybe she, she was. I hadn't clocked, but she is the girl that uh, who is sprayed by Ewan McGregor's faecal matter yeah. in Trainspotting. <laughs> But anyway, and and opposite her is a um, an actress playing Stan Laurel's Russian Russian wife, and they do get they have very good comic rapport. They're they're at each other's throats basically, and the Russian is just sort of slagging everything off. It's very sweet because it's quite a straight film in a way. It's not doing anything particularly clever with the story, and there's a lot of kind of long lingering looks in each other's eyes that remind me a bit of the way the hobbits look at each other towards the end of Lord of the Rings. You know that sort of you know this this sort of covenant of friendship and lots of patting on the shoulders and staring at each other and stuff. And it's kind of I wonder how it's going to do in the Oscars given that it's not. It's not artistic and it's not indie. It's just like a really pure retelling of one specific part of their story. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis and Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Why not sign up to The Week Ahead by also taking out a subscription to The New Statesman? Because after all, Stephen needs to buy Converse and there's only one way to have that. Also, thank you to the people who wrote in and to say suggest people that we would be played by in the film. Someone suggested that I might be played by Ruth Wilson. I hope you've had your eyes checked recently. Someone else suggested that we should, I should be played by the woman who plays Yara Greyjoy, which I'm a big fan of. So um, anyone else would like to name relatively attractive actresses who could play me, then I'm literally all ears.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.